Well, it is a joy uh, to gather and a privilege to uh, be able to look at Mark's gospel together this morning. We are in uh, chapter 8. And if you would, would you stand? We'll begin in verse 31. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, these uh, words that were inspired by your spirit convey spiritual truth. We need the ministry of your spirit to understand them and to receive them. And so we ask, Lord, for that ministry. We open ourselves up to him. Be pleased, Lord, uh, spirit, to illumine these pages, uh, make them plain to us, enable us to find ourselves in them and to see you. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Please take your seats. Well, are you seeing what's really there? or what you expect uh, to see, what you want to see. Uh, This is a question uh, that a researcher was looking into, and the way he approached this was he wanted to see if the way people see things is a reflection of their experience uh, and interest. And so he... uh, used a device called an opticon, and he set it on the heads of the participants. And what this device does is it shows one image to one eye and a different image to another. And so when they uh, showed uh, the image of a bullfighter uh, to the left eye and to the right eye, a baseball player, consistently those from Mexico saw only the bullfighter. And uh, those uh, north of the southern border saw only the baseball Uh, player. When a picture uh, of a red six of spades was shown to people instead of the traditional black card, they could identify it uh, as a six of spades, but it made them uneasy. There was a discomfort uh, that took place uh, with them. And this study, along with many, many others, uh, uh, leads to the conclusion that we tend to see what we're trained to see, what we expect to see, what we want to see, and not always what's really there. 
Now, in the gospel, Peter, in the text we just read, is having an experience uh, kind of like this. Jesus asked, who am I? And Peter jumped up like a schoolboy with the right answer. Uh, you are the Christ. Uh, and, and he felt really good about that, of course. And then Jesus takes him to the next lesson, which is the nature, not of his identity, but his mission. And he says, I must suffer and die. And Peter experiences more than mild discomfort. He is absolutely horrified with that. And he begins to rebuke Jesus for even suggesting such a thing. The word he uses is a very strong word. It's the word that the gospel writers use to describe Jesus rebuking uh, demons. And see, for Peter, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, meant a king who would right all the wrongs and end oppression and injustice. And when Jesus says the Son of Man must not only suffer, but to die, well, in effect, what Peter hears is, you know, something entirely uh, different. He hears, you're going to be a failed Messiah. But Jesus is actually saying, I'm going to be a king unlike any other king you have ever imagined. I want you to look closely at what Jesus says. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. The word son of man might sound like, well, kind of a synonym for I'm just human, but that's not what Jesus is saying. That expression is actually a title found in the prophecy of Daniel, and it speaks of an exalted divine figure who will come and set everything right. And so when Jesus adds the son of man must suffer, that he's a king who's going uh, to suffer, he's saying something that no one had ever put together. No one had ever connected the promised Messiah uh, with suffering. Now, it's true in the prophecy of Isaiah that there's this mysterious uh, servant of God who suffers. But no one had ever put these two uh, together. And so the idea that there would be a Messiah, Christ, who would suffer, well, it was just nonsense. After all, how could a king uh, defeat evil and make everything right by suffering? How could everything uh, be restored by dying? Now, that word must... That word's especially weighted. It's more than just a prediction that Jesus is making. And this is probably what upset Peter the most. What Jesus is saying uh, here is that I came for the very purpose. It's must in the sense it's a divine must. It's necessary from God's point of view. This is God's purpose uh, for me. And it's, it's a necessity in three ways. Now, first, there's a personal necessity to this. So some years ago, a theologian named William Van Storr wrote about love. And he said this, that all people know the difference between false and true love, between what's fake and what's authentic love, regardless of what your childhood was like. And the difference is this, that in false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your own happiness. Your love's conditional. Uh, You give it only as long as the other person is affirming you and meeting uh, your needs. It's not really vulnerable. And if something changes, you can just pull back uh, if necessary and cut your losses. 
In true love, your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself up uh, for the happiness of the other. It's your greatest joy that the other person knows uh, joy. And your affection is unconditional, and you give yourself to them, you give them your love regardless of whether they respond with love as well. In other words, this involves a radical kind of vulnerability. Now, the real problem is, is that nobody's capable of giving this love to the degree that we hunger for it. It's not that you can't ever give this kind of love, but it's just that nobody's really capable of giving it fully. A lot of parents think of themselves as unconditionally loving their children. But when their children respond to them with ingratitude and complaint, and you don't just shrug it off, it's a clue that you're really hoping that you're gonna get something back uh, from your uh, children. This is the same thing in, in marriage, isn't it? For those of you who are married, you actually know, and maybe even calculate this, that my giving of myself to my spouse and meeting their needs will be reciprocated. You're kind of hoping that will happen, right? And it's really very hard in a marriage to give yourself out when there's nothing uh, coming uh, back. That's what I'm getting at. And so sometimes what we do in our relationships is we sort of fake love. Uh, we know we should be loving, but it's really not within us uh, to love in this radically selfless uh, way. You see, we need to be loved. Uh, we hunger for it as much as food. It, we're as desperate for it as air. We just can't live without it. And so we're always looking for somebody who will love us like that. We want someone who will really love and affirm us, and we'll invest our love in those people because, well, we think there's going to be a return on our investment. And we find it really very difficult to love in an unconditional way. When you love with the expectation of return, it's really conditional, isn't it? And so there are, of course, some people who are healthy and some people who are unhealthy. Some people have a greater capacity to show more uh, true love and some people have very little. But at the core, Van, uh, Van Store is right. We hunger for love. And no one's able to give us the amount that uh, we want. So what we need, really, is someone who will love us, who doesn't need us at all. Uh, someone who won't use us, who will love us radically and, and vulnerably. And if someone loved us like that, we might actually be able to love others with true love. Well, who could do that? Well, only the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. They have a perfect love for each other. They take delight in the joy of the other. And this is why Jesus has come. He's come uh, with a love that was true, that was vulnerable. He uh, doesn't use people. Jesus came and died. He paid a very high price uh, to love us, though he doesn't need us. And his love has the power to actually transform us. 
if you are in a relationship with him, it's possible for you to grow in actually giving more and more true love to others. Now, we need Jesus' sacrifice not only personally. There's a personal necessity to it, but there's also a legal necessity. And this is what I mean. When someone wrongs you, and I mean really wrongs you, I don't mean they bump into you accidentally uh, in the hallway, uh, but I mean uh, when they've done something that's harmful to you, well, there's a debt is established. And you can think about it uh, at kind of a material way, an economic way. If, if you have an expensive tool and you loan it to somebody, uh, to a friend, and they ruin it, or you have a beautiful uh, gown and you loan it to somebody and, and they spill something all over it that, and it just can't be uh, cleaned, well, you have a choice. You can either make them pay or you can absorb uh, the cost of replacing it yourself. Um, you can either pay by replacing it uh, out of your own funds uh, or you can let it go. Uh, when somebody robs you of something that you'll never get back, it could be your reputation, it could be an opportunity. When they do something that harms you, that will never ever be uh, made right, you can do one of two things because they owe you something. You can make them pay by doing to them what they did to you. You can, in other words, try to make them suffer as you're suffering, or you can forgive. And you see, forgiveness like that's really costly because you absorb the loss. For true forgiveness always involves suffering. And if you don't forgive, then there's no chance of righting the wrong. Uh, uh, exacting the payment from somebody will only escalate a, a cycle of uh, violence, and injury. But if you've refrained from vengeance and you've paid the cost of forgiveness, it's just possible that you'll get a hearing and they'll actually be able to hear how they've harmed you. Well, God says the only way that I can forgive the sins of humanity is if they're suffering. Either you will suffer or I uh, will suffer. And the only way it would be possible for God to forgive us is that he himself and the person of Jesus suffered. There's a third necessity here. It's hard to actually find a single way to describe it. But here's a way that you might frame it. It's a demonstration of justice. Jesus' death was not only a payment it was also a demonstration. Now, James Edwards is a, well, a well-known uh, commentator on Mark's gospel, and he writes this. He says, the prediction of Jesus' passion conceals a great irony. The suffering and death of the Son of Man does not take place at the hands of a mob. It's not a group of godless and wicked people that put Jesus to death. Rather, it's at the hands of the elders and the priests and the teachers of the law. You see, this is really not what we would have expected at all. He's arrested with official warrants and tried both by the Jewish high court 
as well as, well, the perhaps the greatest standard of secular justice in the world, the Roman uh, system of justice. In other words, it's humanity at its best who crucifies him. Now, of course, both the Jewish uh, uh, high court as well as the Romans should have been standing up for justice. Justice is one of the premier values the Roman Empire uh, worshipped and, and held it, prided itself on. But what instead they did is they conspired to commit an act of injustice by condemning Jesus to death. And what the cross does is it reveals, it demonstrates that the systems of this world are corrupt, that they serve power and oppression instead of justice and truth. In condemning Jesus, the world condemned itself. It demonstrates, Jesus' death in this way demonstrates the bankruptcy of uh, the world. And so at the same time, it reveals the very character of God in his kingdom. Jesus' death was not a failure. By submitting to death, Jesus broke the power of death. You see, Jesus wins through losing. He achieves uh, our forgiveness on the cross by turning the values of the world upside down. He doesn't fight fire with fire, which is what Peter uh, was expecting along with uh, the people of the nation at that time. Instead, on the cross, the world's misuse and glorification of power was exposed for what it is, and it's defeated. The spell of the world systems are broken. Well, if you're not experiencing injustice, that might seem very remote to you. But there's one more thing it does. You see, Jesus died and rose from the dead. And what that means is that the worst thing that can happen in your life is that you die. And because uh, of what Jesus has done, if you're in a relationship with Jesus, that means that death's no longer a threat to you. Instead, death opens the door uh, to you, to life, and the life that actually you long for. And so uh, it's possible as a result of that to actually live a life of love and not live in a state of fear. Well, as you can see, Jesus' kingship's an utter contradiction. A king who suffers and dies for his subjects instead of sending them out uh, to suffer and die for him and the glory of his kingdom. But Jesus goes on, and what happens next shows the contradiction of following Jesus. You see, Peter hears these words from Jesus right after he's correctly uh, uh, confessed who Jesus is for all the disciples, and he's troubled. He intuitively and immediately grasps the implication of being a close follower of a king who suffers. It means that he too would suffer and die. And uh, Jesus confirms that in what he says next. See, to follow Jesus means that you must deny yourself and take up the cross. Now, this is a very hard thing to hear. And actually, it's really hard for us, I think, uh, to hear it. The, the cross as a statement of discipleship was utterly shocking and revolting to them. You see, when they think about 
when they thought about a cross, they are not thinking of a piece of James Avery jewelry, nor are they thinking about a, a, a beautifully crafted piece of wood. Uh, the cross was not a piece of art uh, to them. Rather, uh, what came to their mind was Spartacus and the rebels uh, uh, writhing in agony and shame as uh, they were crucified along the main highways leading into the city of Rome. The cross is an instrument of violence and a painful way to be executed. And it was not the kind of thing that people mentioned in polite company. And you see, this really is hard for us to hear because, well, we live in a time and place where uh, we're especially focused on having a life of self-fulfillment. We want to be comfortable, easy. We want our lives to be safe, secure, uh, where pleasure and entertainment are always at hand. And what Jesus requires of us is hard. It's hard for us even to really imagine it. In fact, it's so hard that people have actually misunderstood what he's saying. The cross is not a metaphor uh, for a hardship or difficult circumstance. It's not my illness is my cross. It's not uh, Uncle Harry or Aunt Sally who's overbearing is your cross. No, denying yourself is not the same thing as denying yourself of something. Now, let's just suppose that one of you boys or girls, your mom's speaking to you, and you roll your eyes at them. And your mom corrects you, says that's disrespectful. And you roll your eyes again at them. And so your mom decides to take away one of your privileges. Let's just suppose if you had had a phone, it was your phone or something like uh, that. And so they're downstairs, you know, cleaning the basement, and the phone is upstairs, and you want to use the phone. Well, denying yourself doesn't mean that you obey your parents and not go upstairs and use the phone. Uh, Denying yourself is not the same thing as going on a diet, abstaining from certain uh, foods or certain pleasures. No, it is not also, doesn't mean to hate yourself or to hate uh, the, the goodness of the created world. If you're uh, a, a human being, then you're made in God's image. You have intrinsic uh, worth. And the creator uh, made the world uh, to be enjoyed. There are pleasures to be uh, enjoyed here. No, what it means is to recognize that you are not your own. And that you, it means to put out of your life anything that hinders you from following uh, Christ. Anything that stands in between, that, that uh, uh, makes uh, you less committed uh, to him if you're his. And then Jesus presses this home. He gives four reasons. And if you have your Bibles open, you'll notice in verses 35 to 38 in the ESV, the word for begins each of these sentences. These are four uh, reasons. And the first reason is that uh, fulfillment, actual fulfillment, is really very contradictory to the way we think about it. Jesus is, is attacking the fundamental assumption of life when he says, uh, try to save your life, 
to gain life on your own terms, to make your life what you want, and you will lose it. You see, that's, just, that's fundamentally what we believe about life, isn't it? That I should pursue life on my own terms. I should grab uh, what I uh, want. I'll make my life what I want it to be, and then I'll be fulfilled. And Jesus says, if you do that, you're going to lose it. Um, he says, uh, you don't own your own life. You can't possess your own life. And then uh, he presses into this uh, with the next two reasons when he says, uh, for what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? And what he's saying is, is that uh, the worth and value of your life is greater than everything in the world. Anything that you can name and imagine having in this world, your life is worth more of that. It's worth more to gain eternity, to have your life for all of eternity, than it is uh, to gain life on your own terms now. You see, to lose your personhood, even your physical existence for Christ's sake, is to guarantee having it forever. And then Jesus underscores the certainty of this loss. And that's very contradictory, but he says, if you're ashamed of me now because of the pressures of life, what you will experience is me being ashamed of you at the end of human history. On that day, when those who wanted uh, to save themselves stand before the one who does not, they will discover that he disowns them. If Jesus is an embarrassment to you, before your peers, before your friends, before your family, at school or at work, or in the social circles you keep, he will not own you. It's not enough to say the right things, to believe all the right things. You must follow him whatever it costs. Now, Mark's first readers were the church in Rome who were suffering under Nero. Uh, there was a terrible uh, persecution that was about to break out on them. And they, in light of these words, saw that their suffering was not a sign of God's abandonment, but rather of their identification with him and their faithfulness to the way of Jesus. Well, I want to bring this down uh, and try to uh, point out some of the many uh, implications of this because there's such pressures on us in the 21st century if we're going to follow uh, Christ. One of the most fundamental is this. There's just a refusal to recognize an authority outside of ourselves. This is the hallmark of the time we live in, and it comes into our own uh, lives. You see, God uh, is weightless for many uh, Christians. He just doesn't weigh as much as their desires or their preferences or their own way of thinking. What he says is of value, uh, the truth he speaks is discounted by us because we don't want to be, as Tim said, be under his word. We don't want to be under his authority. 
there's, uh, because of this, there's both a, a refusal to live a, a principled life, to actually follow out the consequences of what we say is true, what we know Jesus asks of us. We want to hedge it and fudge it. But there's also a lack of uh, discernment. And in some quarters, though probably not true for many of you, there is a, I don't want to, I don't want to really have to think hard about what it means to be a Christ father. I don't, I don't want to have to be instructed in scripture. I don't want to have to understand uh, God's thoughts. All I really want is tell me how to make life work. Just give me a few things to do and, and I'll leave satisfied. But God wants to disciple all of you, including uh, our minds and our desires. And to do that, we have, to, we have to let him deal uh, with us in a deeper way. Another pressure point is time. It's how we use our time. So there's never been a time to have so many distractions and entertainments. There's never been a time when there's so much that's banal and pretty much trite and trivial. Now, I'm not saying that I never veg out. From, you know, there's a place to relax but most of what's available to us in any form of media is actually, well, it's pretty, it's pretty worthless. And, you know, it's a matter of proportion. You can have a little potato chips, but a diet consisting primarily of potato chips and Doritos and ice cream is not healthy for you. And allocating your time so that what you're really doing is mostly engaging uh, the time that you have that's uncommitted in such things isn't what Christ is calling us uh, to do. One of the places you can see this happens is an unwillingness to surrender control over your schedule. To let Christ inconvenience you with the lives of other people. Because the problems other people have usually can't be scheduled. Uh, they can't be uh, fit into 30 minutes on Thursday evenings. It doesn't work like that in, in real uh, life. And, um, you know, so ask yourself, does Christ really, is he Lord of my schedule? Is he Lord of my money? So... Open up your calendars and look and ask yourself. That's hard to do, but ask yourself, is my really using my time the way the Lord Jesus wants me to? Is, is there a denial of myself in this? Am I saying no to me at some level to say yes to Christ and his best uh, for me? It used to be people had checkbooks, maybe. And it used to be you could tell where you're spending priorities in your checkbook. I, I don't know if you can do that anymore. Most of you probably don't keep it. But I did notice that my credit card company sent a long statement my wife showed me, showed me categorized what my spending had been that was reflected in that card. It's a sobering thing to actually look at that and see where you spent uh, your money and to ask that question, just what is it that Christ wants me to do? I want to sum this up with a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says it better than I can when he writes about losing your life to find it. And he says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. 
Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Gracious Father, may you be pleased to grant Grant us understanding and grant us a will, a desire for what Christ offers us. Move us, Lord. Expose what needs to be exposed and affirm, uh, Lord, uh, what in us that actually is living this out and that's pleasing to you.